0: and accelerate your success.
1: Hi, I'm Nikki Barua, your host for today's episode. Have you ever wondered what it takes to rise up to senior leadership roles in global corporations? Research indicates that women leaders who've taken the unconventional path often gain unexpected opportunities of success. So, are you willing to take on tough challenges to gain valuable experience? Would you risk failure when making decisions and follow through with absolute conviction? And are you committed to always going above and beyond? In this episode, you'll meet Alyssa Altman, who shares why building great teams, delivering massive value to clients, adapting to change, and continuous learning are absolutely essential. She also reveals the choices she made in her career and the value she lives by that have led to her success. Alyssa has been recognized by Consulting Magazine as a global leader in consulting for excellence and engagement. She is a senior vice president at Publicis Sapient and leads the automotive and consumer products industries in North America. Throughout her career at leading organizations, it's been her passion to shape and lead diverse teams. Alyssa believes that with the right people in the room actively engaging with each other, you can gain valuable insights to create innovative solutions to any business problem. Alyssa plays an active role in shaping and executing Publicis Sapiens' MBA-like leadership program called the Fellowship and Transformation Leadership. She's also an advisory board member of the company's Women's Leadership Network, shaping the next generation of women leaders. Visit imbeyondbarriers.com where you'll find show notes and links to all the resources in this episode, including the best way to get in touch with Alyssa. Hi, Alyssa. It's so great to have you. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks so
2: much. I'm really happy to be here. Appreciate it.
1: Well, um, I'm excited for our audience to get to know you because I've had the absolute honor and privilege of knowing you for, gosh, I'm afraid to even say how many years now. But, um, you know, you have been uh, a a mentor, an advisor, um, someone I've learned so much from, and you're really exceptional, not just in your accomplishments, but as a a leader who has made it to the top of very male-dominated industries, whether it's the consulting space, media, you know, being an advisor, even in traditional industries, you've accomplished something that is very rare. And I think from that experience, you have so much wisdom to share that so many people will learn from and benefit from. So I'm very excited for to dig into the real raw details of what your journey has been like. So let's just start there. You know, tell us the highlights of your journey and how you got to where you are today.
2: Well, my journey might sound fairly linear when I start telling it. You know, I worked right out of University of Michigan. I was an English major, and then I worked in marketing at Thomson Reuters, which is now Thomson Reuters. It was then Thomson Financial Services, and I decided to go to business school, and that brought me out to Chicago. I went to University of Chicago. School of Business. And um, after that, I worked at Ernst & Young in consulting. And that's sort of where I got some of this great experience, um, you know, working in pretty male-dominated industries. I think at Thompson, I was working in financial services, but I was surrounded by some really fantastic women mentors. And I'm very thankful for that first three years of my journey. Um, but once I hit uh, Ernst and Young, I was thrown right on the plant floor and doing things like activity based costing and trying to get people to um, in the plant to you know be excited that we were there to help them and not take their jobs away so lots of really good experience just finding ways to connect with people mm-hmm. and meet them you know in a place where they felt you were truly trying to help them and I think that 's mm-hmm. been sort of the the theme throughout my journey. Um, after Ernst Young, you know, when the internet became the thing, and my um, at Ernst Young, I had this great opportunity to. Help By the way, us on ex-
1: that note, for yes. our
2: Gen Z and
1: Millennial audience members that are listening to them, we can actually say we were there when the internet
2: happened. <laughs> yes, we were. We actually didn't have email when we first started. When I started in 1995, we we were one of the last companies to get email, but it was because we were focused on a knowledge. Management management system, which yeah. to this day, I think is one of the best out there from a consulting perspective, at least from from my vantage yeah. point. But um, yeah, I, at Ernst & Young, I had this great opportunity to really help them build their e-commerce um, methodology and approach. And so it was really early days, didn't know a lot and got to kind of jump in. And it was one of those things where... In, you know, when I look back, I got a chance to work with pretty much every partner in our strategy practice. And I think that's what gave me some opportunities to work in a few different industries. I primarily worked in automotive, um, done some financial services, done some telecommunications, but it it allowed me to branch out to, you know, new opportunities. And that really gave me the confidence when it was time to make a move um, to go to Sapient. And Sapient Mm -hmm. at that time was this young 10-year-old company that was just kind of making great things happen, and um, went in to help them build a strategy practice. And of course, the bubble happened. And I had to pivot because they really, that wasn't what we were going to be doing. It wasn't what people were buying. So we had to really think about, you know, what our roles and our skills were. And I got a chance to think about you know how where I could add value and what I did is I just found every opportunity to lead teams to understand you know what our clients really wanted and can make that connection with the clients so the opportunities that I had early days on the plant floor to connect with people who were very different from me who probably didn't know why I was there um, that really helped me when I was in the situation was you know for, you know, how to, how to be relevant, how to stay mm-hmm. relevant. And there was a time in my career where I had just gotten to director and wanted to, you know, be leading teams and managing teams, but also needed to still be in the work and, and mm-hmm. digging into the work. And I think the, the theme throughout is you always need to be in the work because mm-hmm. it gives you the perspective, it gives you the connection, and it also it creates this moment for continuous learning I found when I've had those times where I've been overseeing maybe too much and not had the chance to kind of get into certain things. I've always, um, one of my colleagues gave me the, the idea of just picking two clients that you're really going to go deep in. Mm. And, and that has really helped me, you know, forge, forge ahead and be able to scale. And I'm able to scale across many clients, but also go deep in a few different areas at moments where it makes sense for me to mm-hmm. to be part of the team and, and be supporting the team.
1: That's incredible. I mean, just the sheer magnitude and scale of what you're responsible for, that's phenomenal. And that to the industry vertical you're involved in is a very, um, you know, uh, Traditional, but also a very significant industry, right? Yes. In mm-hmm. And um, the impact it creates and, and the side exactly. you're, you're responsible mm-hmm. for. What's interesting in what you shared is that the breadth and depth together, because oftentimes mm-hmm. we know, come across um, people that have risen up in their career, either as specialists that are very deep, but perhaps mm-hmm. have a quite mastered scale. And then there are those that manage at scale that have really become so far removed from the work that, uh, you know, they wouldn't know how to dive deep. So it's, um, I'm curious about how you've sort of figured out the nuance of going wide
2: and going deep you know, and and keeping it all together. (laughs) Yes. Well, the keeping it all together is something I'm always working on. So (laughs) I can talk about that a little bit later. Um, You know, it's been a journey. I haven't always, sometimes I've been too deep in the work and you don't get to lift your head and really watch over everything that you're responsible for. But I think it's also building a team. So a lot of it is not trying to be everything to everyone, but Mm -hmm. build a team of people that feel empowered to you know, own and go deep and to tell you when they need you and know when they need you. And then pick those few clients or few opportunities that you really lean into and you learn from too. I mean, I think what I really enjoy about my job is that there's always opportunities for me to learn new things um, Mm -hmm. and to venture into new areas. Recently, you know, I'm part of one of our leadership development programs and I've never coded in my 20 years and last year I got a Raspberry Pi and I made an Alexa app and this year I learned how to code a, a very, very simple app, but it was all great stuff that you know just kind of moved my mind in a different way, made me understand a little bit more some of the work that, that my team does and, and allowed me the ability to like lean in a little differently. That's incredible,
1: but I love the mindset of continuous learning and mm-hmm. being able to challenge yourself in entirely new things that frankly, you don't need to learn, right? Like you right. at this stage in your career, you really don't need to learn to code an app, but you did, you know, to keep staying at the forefront and challenging yourself. Mm-hmm. In a way. So that's incredible. What, um, what, when you think about your career path and um, the intensity as well. I mean, Mm -hmm. having been in consulting with the amount of travel and the intense hours and there's a lot of nuances to certain industries that you're involved in Mm -hmm. that uh, that's a pretty high pressure, you know, career and job to Mm -hmm. be in for a very long period of time most people, you know, in fact, I can't think of anyone who would opt into something like that unless they had
2: a really big why. Mm -hmm. What is yours? Yes, that's a great question. And I do have a very big why. And it's uh, the opportunity to just you know, it is that opportunity to constantly learn and be able to venture into new types of problems. I mean, and many times you can be at that same client, you know, even people who are in industry, you can absolutely lean in on new problems, you just have to go find them. The nice thing about the, the work that I do is that it almost finds me. Um, so it makes it a little easier for me to find those opportunities. But I do feel like if you're in an organization, having worked with so many clients for, for multiple years, there's always new ways to be growing and changing the work that you're doing today. And I think that's that's the unlock. It's, it's, sometimes it's hard when you're on sort of a rotation, especially if you're working in marketing or finance or even operations. There's not a lot of reasons to change. But right now, there are so many Mm. And I think that's the exciting part is to really take the time to and give yourself the time to reflect on that. And that's also been a learning. And that's a big why for me, too, is that, you know, the ability to kind of dream and then evolve that dream and work with people to help help them achieve Mm -hmm. their dreams um, in different ways. That's, That's a big why for me. So a change maker at heart. Yes, right? yes. Who yes. loves the idea of change and being able to yeah, that exactly, change. So exactly, exactly. Mm-hmm.
1: So um, one of the common challenges we hear about, especially from early to mid-career women, is um, that they get so caught up in the work in doing a good yes. job and keeping their heads down, learning the craft, um, getting better at the craft, contributing, mm-hmm. that... They're great at their jobs, but really terrible at managing their careers. And so as a result of it, you can create value, do an excellent job and get great reviews, but still not get ahead. There's an element of earning alliances and gaining sponsors and in some ways gaining some visible projects that you know allow you to showcase what you have to give. It requires some intentional effort. And mm-hmm. um What has helped you figure that out? Because as you said, you know, you work with all the partners and the strategy practice, for example, Mm -hmm. that opened doors, gave you new insights and learning Mm -hmm. that then furthered your career. What advice would you give to someone who's kind of caught up in that cycle of keep your head down and work and hopefully someone will notice? (laughs)
2: Yeah, I think there's been a couple of things I've done through the years is I, when I was working in the strategy practice, I didn't want to get stuck just thinking about the work from one lens when you work for one manager. And so that's when I searched out a few different other people to work for. And it wasn't my regular work. It was stuff I did on the side. So it was additional stuff. It wasn't, wasn't stuff that was billable because it's a big thing in consulting to be billable. But I think what I've done throughout is always searched out things that, you know, I had some intellectual curiosity, and I felt I could contribute. Mm -hmm. And, you know, through my sapient career, I've had moments where things have fallen on my lap that have been really exciting, um, like working in this leadership program. Um, And then I've had moments where I've searched things out where, you know, I felt, okay, I'm I'm stuck, you know, in this client and I'm not really bringing out all the things that I could be bringing back to the company. At one point, I brought my boss a strategy for the business that just as an input to what he was working on. And I worked on it all on my own. I didn't, you know, look, ask for permission. I just went, put it together and said, I'd love to share it with you if you're interested. And he took pieces of it and then that really forged a much more deeper relationship because he saw my compassion about the business and my intention about the business so mm-hmm. i think look for those things that excite you where you see cha- where you see you can make change mm-hmm. and find those people search those people out and Make sure, too, that when you're working with people that someone doesn't hold you back. Um, Mm -hmm. If you have a boss that is, you know, very focused on you having to go to them to get permission to go to someone else, you know, think twice about how you're going to navigate around that. And I think you can work very, very closely with with your boss to help you, you know, expand in the organization because that's our responsibility as leaders is to help people grow in an organization. Mm, that
1: that's really practical advice in terms of. W- First of all, starting with yourself to say, you know, where do your passions and curiosity and interests mm-hmm. lie? Don't just go chasing after additional work because you want to get ahead because that'll only go so far. It has to come from a place of genuine desire and curiosity. Mm-hmm. But then go seek it out and go above and beyond um, because it's only when you get those opportunities to contribute that it opens the next level. Exactly. Um, yeah.
0: yeah.
1: So. Um, uh, What are um, some of the challenges you've encountered along the way in taking on some of these um, roles where you might have been the only at the table, uh, where you um, were put in a situation where, or perhaps you found yourself in a situation where um, you were the minority,
2: if you will, and Mm -hmm. um, you had to hold your own. So early on, I, Pretty much ignored it. You know, I felt like I was just the same as the people in the room. I might not be wearing the same type of clothes, or I might be um, a different demeanor than some of the people in the room, but I knew that I had the capability to add value. I definitely went through and i still go through moments where you doubt yourself you know when you know you're different you know you say something and it doesn't necessarily fit the, or doesn't feel like it fits the context yeah. but i also know from over the years of experience that that you just you need to get the confidence to say it and it took me a while to get there um been you know in in different situations across clients where um, in one client in particular, very large OEM started early in my sapient days where I was, I was the only woman on that client, I think until you showed up. <laughs> um, and there was maybe one other and many of the meetings I think we all went to, we were the only one in the room and the clients did treat us differently and we had to overcome that. And you, you really, I think have to Um, I don't want to say ignore it because sometimes you need to say something when it's not appropriate, but I think you need to not let it stop you from doing the work at the level that you want to participate. Mm. And I learned that from having to deal with a very difficult client who felt that, you know, I needed to be uh, available 24 seven for Mm him. And I think he just saw me as, you know, An extension of his assistant versus seeing me as a consultant, like you saw many of my colleagues. And I had to take the time over a period of time. I got the strength to tell him, you know, how we needed to 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 work more successfully together. And I think he really appreciated it because it shifted the type of work we did, and it shifted it it elevated him in the organization because we were able to do, you know, a next level of work that we weren't able to do and he was treating me more like in that assistant mode.
1: Mm, yeah. And that's a very challenging experience to go through because it's some level. It does derail your confidence and put a worth and to not only find the courage to stand up for yourself, but also to not, not let someone else's behavior towards you affect your own uh, view of yourself.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So and it was interesting. How did you switch that though? You know, what, what helped you, find that
2: courage and, and have that conversation? Um, So some of it was the fact that it was a constant, like, um, I don't want to say a panic, but something that every time I interacted with this person, I felt uncomfortable Hmm. and I needed to either like figure out how to get on another project, but that felt like quitting. Mm -hmm. And I I don't feel like I'm a, I'm not a quitter. You're not a quitter. So, (laughs) So I wanted to find a way to, at least make sure he understood why I was having a hard time, because I don't even think he had any idea I was having a hard time. And that was honestly one of the big moments where I realized that sometimes when you are having a hard time, you have to find a way to to let someone know um, and not do it in a confrontational way. Right. You need to go and say, I think we can work on this in a much better way. And this is mm-hmm. what I propose. And it took a while to get there. Um, you know, I, I had to figure out how to get him to do his own status reports and how to have me provide the input and the analysis versus actually just writing it up and spending more time on writing it up than the actual analysis. Yeah. You know, something as simple as that. But
1: Yeah. I mean, there are really different forms of microaggressions and mm-hmm. you know, ways where it's um, and oftentimes, the the person doing that is mm-hmm. may not be fully aware. So it's not exactly. necessarily standing up to a bully. It's creating awareness that here's a behavior or language pattern that is um, m- marginalizing my contribution. Right.
2: Exactly. Yeah.
1: Um, when you find yourself as um, Singular in sort of your point of view, and um, in this case it's more about uh, pushing forward your idea. You believe in mm-hmm. something and this is not gender related, but it's just mm-hmm. you are someone who has a point of view that is very strong and you have tremendous conviction in that, but you have a lot of opposition to that in a um, in a room full of very powerful people. How have you successfully
2: moved your ideas forward? So most of it has been by example.
1: Mm. Because
2: sometimes in the room when you say something, people don't, they can't conceptualize it. So you have to create a concept or a prototype for them to understand how it could work. So one of the advantages I have in the business that I run within our company is that I have almost like a microcosm to test and learn. Mm -hmm. And I've used that as a way to say, look, over here, we did this. This is what we didn't do well. This is what we need to do well. This is why I think as an organization, we need to do this and we can actually elevate what we did. So sometimes in the room, like the words don't necessarily make the impact, but I'll go back and I'll say, okay, if I really want to see this move forward, what's the path to show people that it can work? And that take it's a longer path. It's not it's sometimes it's easier to say, okay, we need to do this and be adamant about it. And you can try that route and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. And the times it doesn't, don't feel like it's done. There's always a way to go back and and make, you know, make a case for whatever ideas you have. And you'll see if you're in an organization year over year, the same problems keep coming up and same solutions and you have to constantly be pushing you know, what you think is great. And over the years, sometimes some of what you think is right changes and yeah. you have to own that as well. Yeah. That ability to influence
1: decisions and influence people mm-hmm. um, is also absolutely essential in driving deals, for example. Mm-hmm. And um, one of the uh, areas of discomfort for a lot of women in the workplace is the word sales. hmm Selling is a bad word. <laughs> um, and yet, as we've all experienced through our own careers, you know, you can't get very far if you can't generate revenue. If you are not in, you know, uh, if you're not bringing in the bread and butter, I mean, you're really not going to have significant leadership roles. It's so mm-hmm that. But there's also the perception that if to be good at sales, you have to have a certain personality or a certain background or tons of experience. I think you and I are both examples of people that come from the strategy field. You're mm-hmm. a strategist and, mm-hmm. and yet have sold at very large scale and yes. um, been very effective in business development. Um, and another common thing that uh, you know we share is that we're both introverts and (laughs) (laughs) not probably the opposite of the very flamboyant salesperson Mm -hmm. reality. So Uh, share with us kind of your view of uh, or your own evolution of becoming really effective at business development, influencing the deal making and um, being able to sort of be responsible for revenue generation and have the confidence for it when in many ways it's the opposite profile of what people's perception is.
2: Well, I think we all know when someone is selling something and they're really excited about the product or they're committed to the product, then they sell it very well because it's authentic. And I think going back to that idea of being authentic is selling, if you're selling something to a client because A, they want it and you see revenue from it you're not going to be successful. Either you're not going to deliver it successfully or you're not going to sell it right. But if it's something that you see is really going to fundamentally change their business or it's something they need in the moment that you can help them with and you're going to get excited about, then it makes the sale easier. And you shouldn't think of it as a sale. You should almost think of it as a partnership that you're helping to bring someone something that's going to they're going to see value in. Obviously, they're going to pay for that, but they're going to see value in it for the, for the dollars that they're paying. And I think that if you, you, you wrap your head around that value equation of you providing value, them not just seeing it as an, as an expensive way to do X or mm-hmm. to get X, um, it, it changes the, the dialogue. And I think that going back to the idea of being a strategist, if it truly fits into the right things that they need to be doing for their business, you're selling them the right things. Mm-hmm. Um, and you really-
1: take solving the problems and giving mm-hmm. something that is a value that they can benefit from. You're not taking, you're giving. You're not
2: exactly. And I think take words like BD and sales and and don't see them in a negative connotation, see them as a way to to bring things together to make a match.
1: Mhm. That's a really great way of putting it because it takes away that fear of I don't know what to say if I go in the room and I'm trying to pitch them and make the deal. You know, it, it kind of creates mm-hmm. this uh, feeling of dread of saying, you know, I'm not a taker and I don't want to do this to the client or you know some mm-hmm. workplace. But instead, if you think I'm simply there to solve a problem and I have great ideas that I know they can benefit from and we can partner together to do this, it reframes the conversation and. Then, really, anyone can do that it's not exactly it 's not yes. just for the
2: used car you know <laughs> the parking lots that you have to reserve sales for exactly and I think when, one of the things i I learned early on in consulting is that you know you're always trying to give more to your client and yeah. obviously we're all in business where you know you need everyone needs to be making money so by giving more, it means that you're going to be bringing in more for the company and you've got to learn how to craft that. you got to do the research and have a fact base what you bring into the client. You can't just sort of expect that something's going to sell on its own. And I think it's there's a lot of work in sort of the pre. Yeah, And once you get in the room, it's really how you've developed that trust with the client. That's awesome. Um, let's talk about decision
1: making. Now you are responsible for very large scale, very complex, um, and very consequential decisions. Um, not just for your own company, but also for your clients, and um, they have consequences for long term. Um, decision making is again something that um, you know we tend to fear of making the wrong decision, right? And and mm-hmm. being afraid that what if it fails and what if it goes wrong. How do you approach decision-making and what helps you have the conviction to follow through in the absence of
2: perfect information? So there's really sort of two pieces to it. There's the one where, you know, inherently a lot of times you know what's right and you might be hearing from other people what they think is right. It might not align to what you think is right. You really need to have the confidence in what you feel is right. The few times I've been in situations where I've questioned what I thought was right and went with what someone else did in making a decision, something went wrong. And what I, you know, over the years I've kind of unpacked is that I wasn't ready for when something went wrong. So I sort of took whatever that other person said as this is the right way to do it. And this is the right decision to make. And I didn't think about like the plan B. Mm. So even if I have a gut feel that I feel something is right that I should be going in this direction. I should be, you know, putting this individual on this piece of business, or I should be. We should go into this uh, relationship with a client, and you know, the parameters defining the parameters the right way. I always plan for what if it doesn't go right. How am I? How you know? Am I going to be okay with that? And how am I going to feel? And then what am I going to do about it? Like, what are the different ways that it could go wrong? So that in my decision, I know. I know what decision I'm making. Sometimes mm. it's easy to say, you know, the right answer, but sometimes you don't really evaluate the risk. So overall, just take time to think about the risks in the decision, but don't let it hold you back from making a quick decision because you can actually manage the risk once you've made the decision too. You just need to make sure you're ready for it, that you're you're on the edge. And COVID is a perfect example. We've got you know, we don't know what's going to happen in the fall. Um, we want to be there ready for our clients no matter what the situation is. So, you know, hoping and working with them on what is now hopefully a recovery, but not knowing things could change. The economy could change even more drastically than it has right now. So getting our teams to think about that is something that I'm working on so that we're, we're prime and ready to, to help them whatever decision they decide to make. Mm-hmm. And where we can make those decisions with them,
1: right? So really thinking of not just what could go right, but also thinking through what could go wrong and the implications mm-hmm. or the you know mitigation for that, but not mm-hmm. letting that stall you and create inertia. Exactly, you know, right? And solve it from that. Right. Yes. What about a, a scenario where a decision you made did go wrong and like the those was massive failure and it was because of a decision you made. Walk us through what that was like. How did you deal with it? You know, what did you learn
2: from it? Yeah, there's, um, it's been a lot. So yeah. I've got a whole, a whole bag of tricks to pull out <laughs> on this one. Um, but one that was really interesting for me and how I reacted and how I managed through it was we had a piece of business that we were struggling to deliver And, um, we had signed for like a full another year. And so when I did my planning for the next year, I included it in, um, I I felt like there might not be growth, but I was pretty sure we were going to be doing the same work. And then the company ended up getting bought. And because the client already had another partner they were using for this, when, when they got bought, um, they ended our contract within like 30 days. So that, really set up the next year for a complete like disaster. There was no way I could recover. I didn't have a pipeline. I didn't have, you know, I couldn't reallocate people. Um, And so I had to find a way to like recover from that sort of as a, as a leader. I also had to make sure the leaders on my team who were part of that team didn't feel like they were at a loss. Mm -hmm. And um, so we focused on, profitability for the year. And mm-hmm. we actually were able to hit our profitability number. and we, 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 we did much better than I thought on our revenue number. But because the team wasn't just solely focused on filling the hole in the gap, we looked kind of bigger out a year. I said, you know, this next year is going to be tough. Let's plan for a year out. It's focused on profitability right now. And so we had success. And I think one of the things you know we're learning as leaders within our organization right now, and I'm learning specifically, is that you got to find ways for people to feel like they're winning, even mm. if you have a failure. So that's what I had to do personally. And that's what I had to do for my team as a leader as well. Mm.
1: That sense of progress, that continues that uh, forward momentum as opposed to Mm -hmm. being, you know, like you just lost and it's a dead end and, you know, that um, what the demoralization that happens with that can be a pretty negative spiral Mm -hmm. there Mm -hmm. versus being able to find ways to win. And it's interesting just shifting the focus on what winning looks like from revenue to profit uh, allows you to still create a winning outcome.
2: Exactly. The other piece of this that I think is interesting was accountability. I, I wore it all myself. I did not allow some of the people on the team who were part of not delivering for the client or, or going through a challenging delivery moment. And that was a mistake. Like as a leader, I needed to, to share some of that accountability for it. You know, ultimately, I had accountability in running the overarching business, but the, the team wasn't off the hook and um over the years i've had to learn how to not take it all on my shoulders and that's something that you know has taken a while to learn mhm what about the flip side of it in terms of
1: um you know the wins you know because you are an incredibly humble person and um you know what about um, taking credit where credit is due? Is that something you've had to work into as well?
2: Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. (laughs) Probably more so than the other side. Um, Yes. I, you know, I, I see this as a team sport, but I also know that individuals do have impact and Mm -hmm. you gotta, you gotta take your moment and, And enjoy it. And even if it's you personally just acknowledging it, you have to acknowledge it. I think on the other side of this, too, for a lot of people who are at that mid career stage, is learning how to market it. So you might be on a team that did something phenomenal for a client, and you were leading that team you need to make sure people in the organization know, you know, some of the decisions you made, some of the failures you had, some of the successes you had along the way to get to that result. Because I think then they start to see you as a leader growing in the organization and that's not easy to do. So, Mm -hmm. but um, for example, today I just had spent some time with someone who really is on the analytics side and he wants to get into client relationships and make sure he's taking his, skills and, and growing some of the relationships that we have. And, you know, the fact that he reached out to me to spend time with me, like I was really excited to spend time with him. And I think you'll find as you reach out to people, people are excited to spend time with you and and bring you, you know, into different parts of the organization.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, the the ability to um, self-promote without bragging is really mm-hmm. important because People can't read minds and they have no idea what you've accomplished right. if you're not able to share it and and um, not hog the credit, but certainly claim, you know, the contribution someone has made. Because, And again, this is uh, something that is very common for a lot of women to do where it's in a t- on the negative accountability side of a failure of saying it was I take full accountability, it was a decision I made and that's why we mm-hmm. failed. But when it's a win, it's sort of, hey, we achieved this together as opposed right. to I led the team and here are the decisions that it did and the team that mm-hmm. did. So finding that appropriate balance um, is really critical. So especially in the context of career advancement and, um, you know, being uh, able to highlight your contributions in mm-hmm. the right place at the right
2: time can make a huge difference. I would agree. I mean, I think that you've got to pick the moments where you feel good about it and know how, and I think storytelling is important. So it, you don't necessarily have to say I achieved X. You can tell the story of what you did. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, 10 years ago, I started a project that had six people now, it's, you know, has 450 people, we've actually extended it to other parts of our organization, and they're famously successful. And it's just kind of a, a really good story of how we have partnered with this client all along. But it started with six people where we were just trying to figure out how to take this big piece of business and, and ramp on all of our people, hire new people. And, you know, when I told the story of how the team was interviewing in hotel lobbies and we were actually, um, you know, going to the local bar to put things up live because we didn't have an office and the <laughs> Wi-Fi where we were renting out space didn't work so well. And that particular location had great wifi. Um, you know, that that got people excited about really understanding the journey we had and the successes we had. That's amazing. I actually remember the hotel lobby interviews too.
0: Yes. <laughs>
2: yes. Uh, Did lots of those. Yeah.
1: So um, in terms of um, teams, you've mentioned how, you know, being able to do things at scale or frankly, just achieve any level of success really comes down Mm -hmm. to building great teams. Um, Mm -hmm. Nobody gets ahead by themselves. Um, Tell us your personal philosophy about, you know, um, the traits and the attributes you look for as you're building your team, something that's uniquely your point of view and and how you go about thinking about who you want to bring in. You know, what do you want that team mix to feel like, Um, and and not just in terms of
2: skills, but overall? How how do you design teams? Um, So there's a few pieces of it. I want people to have fun, um, and I want them to learn, and um, and sort of enjoy the day to day. Like get excited. I think a lot of people right now you know, it's been really hard because I haven't been able to be together and enjoy sort of a meal together or, you know, go out after work or even go for lunch. But I think even just um, virtually, people are finding ways to have fun. And I think that's a big thread of how you bring a team together. And you do that by really looking for a diverse set of folks. You have to find people who don't all think the same because they might have fun, but they won't learn. And so it has to be a, a, a combination of both. Um, you know, it's been interesting for me because we've had so many changes in our organization that I've had to constantly like redesign my team and bring, you know, new people come in and I need want to make sure that they feel like they're part of the team. It's very hard when you're in a different organization and you get put with another organization, Mm -hmm. you want to be part of something. So I think that's a big piece of it too, is like putting together, you know, smaller teams where everyone feels they're part of a bigger whole. Right. Um, And I've been learning a lot around communication um, over the last couple of years, like sometimes you take your foot off the gas just to give people room so they don't feel over communicated and they can kind of come into their own. And sometimes you got to really overemphasize the communication and and how you how you make sure your people see your intent mm-hmm. in trying to bring those teams together.
1: Mm-hmm. If there's one non-negotiable trait you look for um, that you correlate the most to success, um, mm-hmm. you know, in someone you're hiring or bringing onto your tra-
2: uh, team, what might that be? It's being authentic. Mm-hmm. Um, someone who, you know, tells it like it is, likes to be part of a team, likes to learn, um, you know, and all those traits kind of ball up into, you know, someone who's truly authentic and true to themselves and feels like they're in the organization and they can be that person. Um, I think that that creates the right dynamic and in, in a team and with people.
1: Um, you've also had uh, a unique vantage point of uh, observing a lot of very successful leaders across industries, you know, just mm-hmm. by being in the consulting space and working with so many different major brands and big industries. What are some of the common traits you see um, in the most successful leaders um, that are inspiring? Not just successful from a P&L standpoint, but truly inspiring, you know, great leaders. What are
2: some of the common attributes? Um. They're not afraid to make bold moves and make mistakes and then recover from those mistakes. And I think that's the, you know, when you look at people out there right now, it's very easy to, to, to think you have to follow a, a recipe, but there's mm. really no recipe anymore. Um, and it, it, it can be defined by where you want to take a company and how you develop the purpose of what that company ultimately is going to be or what it is today and need to evolve to. So, you know, I, when I see leaders that are purposeful, that, you know, aren't change their mind and do it in a big way in some of these larger organizations, you know, just the ability to put a product out there and say this isn't working and take the product off the market or close stores or just reconfigure an organization, that to me is is what it means to be a leader right now. Um,
1: Someone who's is, adaptive,
2: it sounds like. Yes,
1: very adaptive. In their thinking or their beliefs, but willing to keep learning and evolve their views as they get new information and make better decisions. Exactly,
2: exactly. And I think, you know, the the element of purpose and, you know, there's been all these studies around organizations that have purpose, have much more, are much more success, but that's very hard to do in some of the industries out there. And you've got to find the the place and the moment. And I think a leader who's able to do that for an organization is really remarkable. Amazing. Um,
1: You've also built relationships with very powerful, influential leaders across uh, many organizations. That can be very intimidating to someone earlier in their career of feeling like, oh, this is the CEO of a company. I'm not sure I want to approach them or I don't know what to say to them. Why would they take time? Um, Looking back even earlier in your career, how did you approach that situation? How did you gain proximity to those leaders? And how would you counsel someone in that situation? Let's say in their early to mid career, and and should they be approaching senior leaders? And if so, how do they approach them? And how can they create
2: meaning, not just feel like, "Hey, I'm there to get their autograph." Right. Right. Well, I early days when I first started Sapient, one of my first clients was a CIO of a manufacturing company, and we were having dinner. It was a whole team with him and. Of course, we were somewhat intimidated by the fact that he was the CIO and we were doing a very large project for him. And he said, you know, everyone puts their pants on the same way. And I think if you think about it that way, um, that, you know, everyone is human. Mm -hmm. And a lot of these folks really appreciate when someone, they talk to someone who's very smart, who cares about their business or cares or is interested in some of the things that they're doing mm-hmm. um, at any stage of your career, you know, someone is senior, even if you're at the same level as them, yeah. there's still some level of intimidation because you want to make sure you're giving to them. Um, I think that's an important piece is not not just because they're senior, they're not going to, you're not only going to learn from them, they're going to learn from you and know that you can bring a lot of insight to them um, at any stage of your career. Mm -hmm. and I learned that also early on I was in um, one strategy meeting with one of the partners um, back when I was at Ernst & Young and I went into a meeting and he was presenting so I didn't feel like I needed to say anything and at the end of the meeting he said you know you really need to be prepared to say something Mm -hmm. and so throughout my career I've always made sure when I'm in a meeting I try to say something. Now, sometimes it doesn't feel It's not right. And you don't do it. But always be prepared with, you know, some things where you're going to provide value that's additive um, and that feels authentic. Mm, that's great advice. Um,
1: what do you wish you had learned earlier in your career?
2: Um, it, it really comes down to confidence. I think you just need to realize that, you know, you're constantly learning. Everyone around you is constantly learning in this world that we live in, even the most senior people are figuring it out. Mm. So it's not a pecking order type thing. Um, And so if there's things you don't know, that's okay. Um, But just be, but know what you don't know and not think you know everything Um, and and gain the confidence to have a voice in Mm. situations where, you know, it's not always easy and you'll make mistakes and it's okay. Mm, that's that's sage advice
1: because uh, when we are unwilling to take a chance to say something or step up mm-hmm. um, we're just not letting our light be seen so mm-hmm. being able to do that early on can get us much further ahead right, right. now looking forward um, mm-hmm. you're also in a cutting edge space like you know digital transformation and and um, you're able to see what the largest industries and organizations are doing. Mm -hmm. From your vantage point, what do you see, you know, in terms of uh, the biggest trends that will impact business and specifically from the context of what opportunities
2: emerge that women should be conscious of? So from a digital perspective, I think the, the sky's the limit for opportunity. I think, you know, whatever your passion is, whether it's marketing, whether it's finance, whether it's operations, um, there's going to be so many new ways for you to embrace the future. Mm-hmm. And I think no matter what your personal situation is, um, there's there's opportunities to be a leader. Um, whether it's owning your own business or being part of an organization, um, I think you're a perfect example of that. Of the, you know, how you've gone from working for a few companies to building your own company to building yet another company, and just finding ways to add value back into to the world. But I think ultimately you got to find something you're passionate about, and if you just sort of find something that you think you're supposed to do. Or you got a degree in? You know, I have an English major degree. I thought I was going to be a lawyer. That's the part I didn't tell tell about, and turned up going to business school. And um, you know, you just kind of have to let your dreams evolve over time and and find those moments in this very exciting space right now. Like this, I feel the sky's the limit.
1: Yeah, it really is. I mean, there's just so much opportunity despite the current situation we're in, which can see. Mm-hmm. Very depressing, and um, you know, sort of end of the world like um, with what's going on. But I think in every crisis, new opportunities emerge. Exactly. Space for leaders and change makers to step in. So exactly. So, and I think that is where um, for women to play a bigger role, you have to opt in, you have to step into those roles and take on bigger challenges and responsibilities. And now is the time to do that. So um, let's shift into something more personal. So okay. tell us um, a little bit about how do you keep it together? And, uh, you know, uh, for me, you know, one of the things that I've admired so much about you, you know, for all these years is that you are literally the hardest working person in the room, always, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, your level of commitment and just sheer tenacity to make things happen. It's absolutely admirable, mm-hmm. um, but it's not easy to make that happen and keep yourself together as well. and so how do you practice self-care and how do you prioritize your time? What do you do?
2: So I've learned different techniques over the years. It doesn't always work. There are always moments of complete challenge. Like, um, you know, my my mother was very sick with Parkinson's and I spent 18 months traveling on weekends to see her and my dad. And right now I'm taking care of my dad full-time while trying to know, navigate our work. But one thing I've tried to do more recently, and I'll kind of take you through my journey of this is, um, I try to spend at least 20 to 30 minutes on something that lets me like, shut off my brain. Mm. Um, And in most cases, I, you know, right now I have the Peloton app, I've go to orange theory. I've worked out with a trainer. I actually have been doing that virtually now, which is very cool. And I wish I, over the years I've been traveling, I could have done that in my hotel room. But, um, yeah, I think that that's something I've been really trying to do. I don't do it. Every, it doesn't always work. Like some days it just doesn't happen. And I don't beat myself too much up about it. Um, but I definitely try to like make that a priority. Um, and so I think, you know, finding something that allows you to release, that gives you some pride, you know, the nice thing about whether it's working out in you know, in a class or going or even going on a virtual class, you, you get to see other people, you get to interact with other people outside of your world. And that always gives me like a whole nother level of, of joy and relaxation. Um So that that's helped a lot. I think the other thing that I've done um, is eating. Um, So eating is really hard when you're on the road. And you just have to pick a few things that you know. decide what you want to eat for breakfast, you know, decide what you think you'll have for lunch, maybe dinner is not going to be so good, because you're going to have to go to a bunch of client dinners or team dinners. But just, you know, really trying to think through ahead of the week, What you'll be eating, so you don't at the end of the week feel bad. Like, Mm -hmm. don't allow yourself to feel bad about any of the choices you make during the week, just look to the next week. Yeah,
1: that's that's amazing because that guilt of setting a target and then failing it is really does have a negative impact because it's exactly. like, gonna, you know, uh, avoid carbs this week and then, you know, you eat it and then you beat yourself up and you give right. up money. So um, I love what you're saying, which is, you know, fine. Pick a few things you can actually execute, do your best, but if you fail, just move on and focus on what's ahead. Right. So, Try it again the next week. Yeah. So- What um, has given you the greatest joy um, in your career?
2: um, So I really, the greatest joy for me is seeing all the people I work with thrive, um, whether they're working with me today, um, whether they're on my team right now and just seeing, you know, their ability to grow and do some pretty amazing things. So it just, even just, being near some of that um, has been great and also being able to be a part of helping them, you know, take those steps and enabling that, like that gives me great joy. Um, Same with my, our clients, like seeing them achieve some great things in their careers and and be able to move into new opportunities. That's really exciting. So I'm, you know, I'm more focused on the people side, but it ultimately, ultimately has to do with business value. But for me, It's the impact I have on people. Like when I look back on my life, you know, that's the one thing that I want to be really proud of is have I enabled a lot of people to have just a great experience in life?
1: Well, I can attest to that. You definitely have. Thank you. I'm very grateful for that. Um, Alyssa, thank you so much for uh, joining us on the show and for sharing your counsel and wisdom with so many people. It's uh, been a real pleasure and thank you for continuing to
2: inspire us all. Wow.
0: Share your comments and topic suggestions on IamBeyondBarriers.com, and we'll be sure to address them in future episodes. If you enjoyed our show today, please subscribe and rate the podcast or just tell a friend about it. See you next episode.